Thank you for joining us for another installment of the Opinionated Stance Podcast. Welcome. I am your host, Patrick Farrar. And please do us a huge favor and visit OpinionatedStance.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Also, if you haven't done so, head over to the YouTube. Check us out there. Subscribe to the channel there. And yeah, if you have any comments, questions, feedback, show ideas, please reach out. We always love to hear feedback from our listeners and thank you again for this sh- uh listening to the show today we're going to take and have a very much of a treat uh past couple of weeks we've been doing you've just been hearing myself do more of monologue type episodes but today our topic we have a guest in the studio or remotely in the studio today and our topic today is going to be talking about founder stories and my guest is a very very close friend of mine Josh Holot. And the reason we wanted to bring him on the podcast today is I think it's going to be a story that's going to be uh, insightful, helpful, and great for anybody who's looking to bootstrap a business and get it off the ground. So a little bit of background. In late 2015, Josh and the team at StageBlock were acquired by Full Screen Media, uh, which marked the end of their bootstrapping phase as StageBlock was brought into the Full Screen family. Uh, and Josh is here today to talk about his experience with getting StageBlock off the ground building a customer base, growing the team as a CTO, and also growing the business. I'll let him describe in more details uh, a little bit about the company and all this other stuff. But without further ado, welcome to the podcast, Josh. Hey, thanks for having me, Patrick. Glad to be here. Yeah. Thank you for joining us early morning. I know you're in California and we're in Illinois, so the time difference has changed uh, to no take it, to take and deal with so I'm I kinda, always a morning person awesome awesome I know I teed you up a little bit about the uh, the company there but please tell us tell everybody a little bit about your background and the company background before we jump in uh, yeah so just a brief overview of the company uh, background we we started about I don't know seven years ago uh, actually in Wisconsin uh, me and a high school friend dropped out of college uh, and joined along with a, a third person who had already been doing it for couple of years. Um, we spent about six months in Wisconsin, then decided to move down to Chicago in the Midwest, uh, just to be closer to some of the investors we had and some better networking, better mm-hmm. community, just a larger community. Um, we were in Chicago for about five years, started out at 1871, uh, which is now kind of the startup hub of Chicago. Um, after about five years, we were acquired by Full Screen Media out in LA. Um, and about six months ago, uh, the team relocated out to Los Angeles. It's palm trees versus snow. That's exactly yes. what you've got. So, um, so that's a little bit about the the team and stuff. Let's talk about what your background is in terms of. You said you left college. You started working on this. What it? What was StageBlock? What is StageBlock currently? What do you do? And what are your customers? Yeah. So uh, StageBlock always started out as a way to help content creators and, and make their lives a little bit easier. Um, we, we kind of are a platform where you do e-commerce, fan club, email marketing, uh, all sorts of tools in one spot uh, so that the, the managers of these talent don't have to go to 100 different services just to sort of run their business. And we consider content creators essentially like a small business. Um, you know, if you think of a band like Metallica or Church who are on our platform, uh, they operate really no differently than a small business would um, in terms of selling their merchandise online, so on and so forth. Um, Full screen, it's kind of interesting because full screens, uh, one of their taglines is sort of uh, we, like we empower creators. Uh, and that was always at the core of our company, even before necessarily we knew uh, what full screen was or that we would sort of become on the same team as them later down the road. Um, my background is I was going to college for computer science. 
uh, this came along and I, I decided I wasn't really learning enough at college to, uh, to keep paying the $45,000 a year uh, that it would have cost me. Uh, so I dropped out and kind of just took a chance on it and, uh, you know, kept seeing little bits of hope and progress along the way. So never gave up. Uh, and uh, persistence uh, paid off, I guess. Yeah, it did. Like I know that it's been it's been a journey uh, to see it from uh, the humble beginnings to where it's at right now. So, like maybe explain. So, one of the things I think is very beneficial is we hear like we, you and I, uh, are involved in the startup community and the tech community here in Chicago. You're involved, obviously, in California now that you're there. People are always starting their journeys on different ways. They're taking either going and getting financing or some sort of uh, venture capital, some sort of investment going forward, or they're taking and starting to bootstrap out and starting to scrap like scrap ideas together, scrape ideas, and work in a basement. So, um, why don't you tell people a little bit about the the earliest beginnings of like when you came into here, like for Chicago, like when you started out, like. How many people did you have on staff when the product started, when you started to get your first customers? What was the working environment like? And then now, where? how did it grow and progress? And then how, as a business person, did you figure out like when it was right to start to bring people on and do this and all these other things? Yeah, um, so it started out with three of us who moved down to Chicago, um, JD, me, and Tom. Uh, I, at the time, sort of handled all the, the back-end development um, JD handled all the front end development, uh, and Tom handled pretty much everything else, uh, business development, meeting with investors, uh, designs, that sort of stuff. Um, like I said, we sort of started out in 1871. Um, but as we brought on one or two people, we realized that, uh, we kind of wanted our own office space to get out of 18, the noise uh, of 1871 and kind of be able to focus, uh, head down on, on product and, and make some really cool features. Um, so we kind of grew the team. Uh, we actually then started to work out of our three-bedroom apartment uh, in Logan Square for for quite a while. Uh, at one point in time, we had seven people living in the three-bedroom apartment. Um, don't tell the landlord. Uh, I won't. I that won't. was <laughs> that. That was pretty fun. Uh, we did that for about a year, um, and then we actually got our first uh, official office um in i guess you could call it downtown chicago it was sort of right on the fringes of the true downtown um we started out in that office with only like four or five people um at one point we got up to eight or ten in there it was kind of always in flux um and then uh we were in that office pretty much until the uh, full screen days uh in which case we moved to another small office uh in the fulton market area um and then eventually uh to la that's cool. So like, what were some of those challenges on the early times that you guys started off with? Like, obviously you had, there, there were reasons, you said there was distractions at certain places to work. You wanted to have more of your own taken, have more of your own autonomy in your own office environment. But what are some of like the bootstrapping uh, distractions or things that were challenges that you had to overcome early on to get your business growing? Like, Everybody has an idea to make the next best Facebook or the next best Twitter or the next best thing. But how did you guys actually start to, you know, get money, get clients, get that stuff? Like, what are some of the things that you can remember or advice topics that you can think of to give to other people? Um, yes. Yeah, so, so getting the customers is, is particular, particularly interesting, especially in the entertainment space. Uh, I'll hop back to that to in a second. I think the hardest thing both then and honestly still sort of nowadays is, is always the people. 
Mm -hmm. um, and by that, I mean the hiring process uh, from sort of two perspectives. One, uh, pure monetary. Uh, right, right. When you're a startup, you don't have necessarily, you may not have any money. And if you do have money, you don't really have the kind of money. Well, at least we didn't because we were bootstrapped. Uh, you know, we didn't raise like 20 million, 30 million dollars, like some of these startups um, to pay people market rate. So you have to find a way to sell them on, you know, obviously you can offset that with equity, uh, whether, you know, there's a debate about whether or not sort of sweat equity is worth it. But um, so finding people and convincing them that this is the right thing they should be spending their time on, even though they're making under market rate. And, and maybe working more hours than they would at a comfy job is is obviously always a difficult thing to do. But yeah, it's a challenge. When you when you find that right person, though, uh, you know it, it's kind of like magic. Um, obviously, our founder group, uh, we were all very much so that way. But when you can find those first two, three employees that also feel that way, um, and things just start to click, that's sort of cool to see. But even nowadays, uh, you know, at full screen, trying to trying to build a team and hire people is it's still you know. We have the the finances now, which is great, but it's still it's still a challenge to find the perfect team fit uh, in terms of skill sets and culture. Um, so that problem never really goes away. Um, hopping back to the the customers, um, the entertain we, we work a lot in the entertainment industry, um, a lot with music and bands, um, also with some chefs and comedians and that sort of stuff. Um, but the entertainment industry is is very close knit, and they're constantly being pitched different products from people all the time because right. everybody feels like they want to work with talent. Um, so obviously, they're very skeptical. Uh, they're they very much so in the mindset of you need us more than we need you um, because they bring the audience, they bring the customers. Um, so selling to them is a very long sales cycle. Um, okay. And it's it's very a much, trust building thing at that point. Yeah, I was, right? just, I was literally just going to say it's it's very much so built on trust where you get one artist from a management company, maybe they'll toss you two or three more of the artists, and then maybe if you're lucky, you'll eventually be working with their whole roster. One management company sees that you're working with the other management company, and they're like, hey, we want to see what's going on over here and see see how they're using this tool to help them and, and so on and so forth. Um, but there's also not really a lot of room for error. Right, um, right, because you know, it's high profile. Up, High profile, it's high profile and you know honestly while our product uh is unique in certain ways there's hundreds of products that you can build stores on there's a couple products you can do fan clubs on there's a lot of products you can do email marketing with um we have a lot more features than just that but the three sort of pillars of what we offer um you know you can go other places and get those same things they mm -hmm. may not be all in one like with our product but they do exist yeah so like your first customers, like how did you take and get that trust in there? Like obviously you have to have some sort of, there's some sort of faith that goes in on their side of like, we're going to trust these guys and give them a shot and you got to take and make sure that you deliver. But how did you guys explicitly go about like proving that you guys could handle it being in a bootstrap? Cause I know that there's people that, you know, oh yeah, I can, some companies can overpromise and under deliver, but I know from personal experience that you guys promised and delivered what you guys said because i've helped you guys do that so it's it's very much so the white glove service um you know you kind of have to there's definitely times where we sold people on on sort of where we were going and not where we were and they may have expected us to be ready where we were going so 
all you do then is you you sit down and grind and bang out that feature that they might think you have so that when it comes time for them to use it, you have it. Um, and it, it's very much so just about making them feel like, you know, you're always quick to, to answer the email. You're always around for them if issues occur. It's very much right. so the white glove service um, in those early days. And and the interesting part is if you can find the right talent, um, you know, artists are creative people as well. So they're always trying to look to use the tools that can get them one leg up or, or, or help them with their creativity. Um, so if you find the right talent, you know, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to start a company and, and the next day be working with, with talent like Metallica or Kenny Chesney. But if you can find up and coming talent who, who sees where you're going and work closely with them before they're huge and, and you can grow along with them, that's, that's a, a great way to do it. Um, Back in the early days, we used to work a lot with the uh, the Glitch Mob, um, which is three DJs. Uh, I think they're based in LA. Um, we don't work with them anymore, but they sort of helped us with a lot of our features early on and, and getting getting up and running. Um, so that, that's a good way to do it too: is is finding people who who are interested in what you're doing and willing to partner with you uh, at that level. Right. That's really cool. So. You got these customers in, you were bootstrapping, you started to get resources in. How did you know, like, how did you guys start to make decisions on when it was time to bring in the next developer or when it was time to bring in the next marketing person or when it was time to get the office space? Because at that time when you're bootstrapping and you're trying to make and like, you know, you have limited resources, how did you know that you didn't want to go get funding or what were some of like those early, like uh, probably hard conversations that you had that um solidify like what decision making process you were going to go down for yeah i mean honestly it was always just kind of a function of the money we had at the time so the product itself never made enough money really to to sustain itself which is why we we had to we raised some money through friends and family um along the way but we only raised a little over a million uh throughout the whole course of our company and that that was over four or five years. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't all at once. It was, you know, like 200 here, 500 there, 300 there. So, which honestly, it it probably helped us budget better if we had to raise it all at once and then, and then kind of blown it all in the first year or two, you know, hired a bunch of people blown it all in the first year or two, we probably, we probably wouldn't have made it to where we were. Right. I think it forced us to be very stingy uh, along the way and, and only hire uh, what we were capable of affording at the time. Um, so that was in hindsight, probably, probably a good thing, but basically, you know, just as we had the resources, we brought in the people and we always took the mindset of, we have the money. If we need to stop paying ourselves literally any amount, we'll do it to pay somebody else to come in and help us who, you know, may not be as invested from an equity standpoint or from an idea standpoint, but wants to help us out. We'll, we'll very much so throw put our money where our mouth is for those hires as opposed to ourselves, because right. we know at the end of the day, this, this all falls on us and nobody's, you know, ever going to care necessarily as much as we do. So, right. It's your baby. So like going off of that point, it's like, so there's tough parts with that. Like you have to take in, you know, when you're taking in bootstrapping as a founder, when you take in have to take and make that decision, we want to bring in X, Y, Z person and you're taking certain to not eat. Uh, you're going back from eating ramen to half of a ramen. I, I, I'm taking it's hyperbole, but um, what keeps you going? What kept you going in that phase to take in, you know, weather the storm, it's going to take and be better at the other end, potentially, even if like, 
you didn't have that on your radar. Like there's no guarantee yeah. of success, but you're putting faith into this. Like from a personal psychological standpoint, what was the driving force there? I, I've thought about that a lot. And <laughs> honestly, I don't really have a good answer. It was just, it was one of those things where, you know, and this it, it's kind of annoying because it's a cliche answer, but it just kind of like always felt like the right thing to be doing. Uh, even in the in the crappy days when you know we had literally no money and no employees and we you know maybe we lost a customer that sort of stuff like there was still kind of like I was saying earlier always that like glimmer of progress and that glimmer of hope and the the thought that this feels better or right more so than anything else I think I would be doing at this point in my life so I'm just going to keep going and and there was definitely times where I was like okay cool I'm going to give this another three months and if if nothing happens I'm out but whatever no matter how small it was there was always sort of something where it was like okay this is worth continuing on okay this is worth continuing on um i i think it's it's sort of just like an innate thing it's it's not anything that's like tangible it's just sort of like it felt right it felt like it was the drive almost right it yeah and i mean it was also very there at the tangible level it was also very helpful that i didn't have a family and i didn't have kids and i didn't necessarily have a lot of expenses so I could very much so afford to, you know, live and work from the same apartment and work, you know, 80 hours a week or whatever it might be. I didn't really have a lot of other things in my life that I needed to give any attention to. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I can totally understand that if you had those things in your life and you you felt like in your making those sacrifices, it would really make sense to potentially take and say, okay, developers are at an exponentially high rate right now. I'm a developer, but I'm working really, really low rate. The The mindset can come and creep in of like, oh, man, what if I just like started to look for a job? I can go get the money. But like it's interesting and it's good to hear that, you know, if you have true value and true passion for the product and the concept that you're working on, sometimes it is to take risk. But don't do it as like you can take risk, but make sure it's calculated. Make sure you have some sort of a buffer and a safety net. I think that's kind of like the main thing that you're trying to say is like, you didn't have as much, uh, I'm not going to say responsibilities because there were definitely responsibilities, but you had far less of like, you had less people depending on you in terms of like personal providing, right? All of my responsibilities that I had were, were tied to the company and pretty much nothing else. So while I did have responsibility, yeah, it was, it was entirely on everything I did was for the company because that's where all my responsibilities lied. Right. So it was very easy to focus on that because it was really the only thing to focus on. Right. Sure. Like, and it was like, if you're taking and doing a sheer mathematics thing, if I put more effort in the company, it's going to have a better output. If I don't focus on that, it's not going to have the output there. So, exactly. um, yeah, like what, so what are some of the biggest things that you learned personally introspective? Like, cause you said you started this company uh, with basically dropping out of school and like this was your first job right first job out of first professional career correct and you're thrown into as a young buck a cto role where you're starting to take and build software from the ground up and then you're starting to manage people and find people and stuff what is the main thing that you learned in this whole life lesson personally uh through this like initial journey like because it's got like I never did that. I started working for people and stuff. It's very, it's a different approach that not everybody's going to understand. So what did you learn? I mean, I think the biggest thing, the biggest two things, and I I think they're almost very much so like 
uh, Midwestern, Midwestern sort of things, at least I've realized them more from people in the Midwest than I have from, from either of the coast is honest, honesty and, uh, being humble. Um, so everybody in the Midwest works very hard and they're very humble about it. Um, and you know, people just kind of sit down, do their work. Don't, you know, they don't brag about it. They, they go in, do their stuff, get out, that sort of thing. And they're not expecting any extra praise. They're not expecting anything crazy. It's just, this is what I do. Um, and I think the other thing is, is being honest both with yourself and with anybody you might be working with. So whether that's when you're bringing on new hires, being honest with them about, you know, not only the kind of hours you're going to expect from them or the kind of work you're going to expect from them, but also where you are uh, from a financial standpoint. Mm -hmm. if, if you tell them, hey, yeah, we're going to be able to pay you, you know, 90, 100 grand for the next two years, but you've only got 40 grand sitting in your bank account. Like that's not being very honest with them and it's going to come back to bite you. And, and if, if that person then leaves because of that, they're also going to tell all their friends like, Hey, stay away from this company. They're not honest people. Uh, you know, they screwed me over, whatever. So, uh, and, and also obviously with your investors and with any customers, like if you're not honest with those people, it's going to come back to bite you. And when you're, when you're a small company that um, has only worked with a couple of customers and a couple of people, like, the earlier on you start that bad reputation, uh, the harder it's going to be to recover from that. Right, right. Trans uh, Transparency is always a good thing. It's always a better thing. You know, yeah. even if you're going to miss a mark on something, just like some sort of communication of like, hey, you know, we're we're off a week. It's is that okay? Like communicating that versus saying, oh, it's it's coming, it's coming is probably a better thing than just like, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, over communication uh, with employees, with the founding group, with investors um, is always the approach I take. Uh, you know, Tom, JD and I lived together for, for a good two years and never once did we really ever get into ar any arguments because it, it was never, hey, you're messing up, you know, be better at your job. It was always, hey, this thing isn't going as well as we thought it could. How can we work together or do something to make it go better? Right. Um, so... Right, right. That's cool. So obviously at a point you were starting to take in, in this, like, I'm going to say like you were a caterpillar at one point in time and then you started to get it into cocoon and the metamorphosis happened and you turned into this beautiful butterfly as an organization. It's a very cheesy analogy there. But at some point you started to go from we're just a company with one customer to now we have two customers and three customers and four customers, now five, six, ten, twenty, so on. And things started to grow. And things started to grow uh, exponentially in terms of like, a just the customer base, uh, the clientele, the level of clientels and the fans that they had, and all this stuff. How did you guys handle that from a business standpoint? Also, how did you handle it from a technical standpoint? Because that's a huge thing. Like, some of these companies that other people are going to be creating and other people have already are in this early like crawling phase. Then they're going to hit some point where they're going to need to grow. What advice do you have for that growing phase? Yeah, I mean, from the business standpoint, um, you know, one thing we did was we just, we hired some account managers to kind of offset some of the simpler questions that uh, some of our customers were having to deal with so that the developers could focus on developing. Um, we still did, you know, we, we tried to maintain that white glove service, especially for the talent that was with us early on and for the bigger talent that was coming on. But it's also kind of having having the mindset of knowing knowing when one customer needs something 
uh, and when they're you know thinking when they're going to get upset you know treating them with higher priority than others for that it's kind of it's it's always a balancing act right like right right you kind of know okay this 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 customer is getting a little upset or we really need to hit this deadline for this one this other one we've been crushing it for so we can we can kind of not focus as much on them for the next two to three weeks uh, and it, it's always a balancing act in that regard um from the technical standpoint um you know, it was kind of weird. We never really like explicitly focused on, you know, hey, we're bringing on this big talent. How do we make sure this software works for them? It was always, it was always kind of, hey, we landed this talent. Like we hope things work, and if they break, we'll fix them really promptly, and we'll focus on that first. Um, and I guess you know, we we kind of got lucky um, in that regard. The the software, you know, kind of scaled with the customers uh, for the most part. Um, and when it didn't, the problems that we had to solve uh, were not too crazy. And and we were very lucky and got some smart people in our first mm-hmm. two or three employees, much smarter than myself, uh, who were able to help solve those problems uh, relatively relatively easily. Um, and it also was probably useful that, you know, we, we were never seeing absurd amounts of traffic. Um, the, the traffic we see is very much so in, in waves where, you know, an artist is doing a pre-sale for their show or, or that sort of stuff. And everybody's trying to get to the website at once, uh, right, but on right. a basis, it's, it's not really all that crazy. That's cool. That's really cool. Um, one of the things that I thought about just as you were taking going on this stuff is again, we as developers, as people in general are working with, uh, timelines and you said it in like the resources of, oh, this account manager is taking and doing, uh, this particular thing, or they're you're trying to take and do customer needs based upon, you know, based upon the resources that you have. In development, you have resources, right? You have time. How do you know which projects to work on? And maybe more at a thirty thousand level feet level from a developer standpoint, how did you know what you wanted to work on? Like what was important from a technical standpoint of getting something built up versus this is a nice to have. We can do this when we have some free time or have some extra resources. Like I know that one that you and I have talked about uh, in the past was like testing, like test driven development or, um, you know, doing software. Like there's some things that you've done. I know personally that would be great to share with people Uh, like your pull request process and also talking about like automating vagrant boxes and all that stuff. So, yeah, part of the benefits of having the small team that we always had was you can't really focus on anything that's not the highest priority at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty much like, cool, if we don't solve this thing, like this customer is going to leave. Or if we don't solve this thing, we're not going to land this customer. And we only have, you know, two or three developers to do it. So those two or three developers better be working on that thing. Um and even if there's deadlines stacked on top of each other, it was always like, cool, well, this deadline's first, so crank this out, and then we'll figure out the next one after we get through this one. Um, it was just always kind of, you know, it was almost kind of like running hurdles. Like, you focus on the closest one. Once you get over that one, you focus on the next one. Right. Um, and then and then part of, the you know, being a founder is specifically from the tech level with JD and I is if there was ever anything that, you know, any employees we had at the time you know, we weren't able to get done fast enough. We would just pick up the slack and work whatever hours were required to to get that thing out the door. Um, obviously, that's not ideal, and you'll burn out eventually. And and there's there's better ways that that stuff should be handled. But when you're in that bootstrapping phase, sometimes you just gotta like you know pony up and do it, so to speak. Um, 
And luckily, you know, going back to not really having a family or kids or anything like that, we were able to do that um, and when we needed to uh, and not sort of have the stress of, of upsetting anyone else around us per se. Right. That's really cool. Um, like, cause I know like some of the stuff that you guys have done and stuff I, I've taken and brought into other technical projects and organizations um, in the past with like the way that you guys have handled pull requests in terms of like it's feature based there. And I think the way that you've onboarded people in terms of like you take in any place that you can, you put automation in. Like I remember that uh, from a standpoint. So like what automated tools did you guys use to get off the ground for yourself? Yes. Yeah, so specifically with, with developers, um, you know, it, it's interesting when, when you bring on your first developer two or three, because you're hopeful that they can just come in and start doing everything day one, but you sort of had to realize, Hey, they've never seen this code base before. They've never seen this product before. They don't really know our current initiatives. So it's, it's frustrating and eye opening when you're like, Hey, like, why don't you know all this stuff already is day two, but obviously like you can't expect them to know everything on day two. Right. So what we tried to do was, was, yeah, one thing was, was automation. Um, you know, we, we had our, our development, development, development machines were able to be spun up in, you know, I'd like to say less than 15 minutes with vagrants so that a new developer could come in and, and be working on coding day one right away. Um, you know, not spending the whole first week just getting their machine set up and getting right, ready to right. work. didn't have the time or money to have, you know, paying a developer for a week to kind of not do much. Um, another thing we did specifically with hiring developers, which I think was useful, um, we very often, which which we can't really do anymore nowadays, being part of a larger company, but we very often would do like three-month contracts uh, with them to see Let's make sure we like working with you. Let's make sure you like working with us before we sort of tied the knot with that developer, so to speak. And that was really from both protecting ourselves as a company and uh, also for the developer's benefit in terms of, you know, if we bring you on and, and you're not enjoying it either, you have an easy out in three months and you don't have to feel, you know, obligated like you just joined this company and now you're already out the door. Um, so that was one thing we did too. I think um, that worked out pretty well for us. Um, I think in pretty much all of the cases, we almost uh, ended up bringing that person on. Um, but it was cool because uh, it was it was a lot more stress. It was a lot less stress uh, knowing you weren't necessarily tied to the person, uh, and you could kind of see how they work with you and you work with them yeah. uh, in a shorter time frame. Um, and then another thing we did is we've always tried to have pretty well defined processes uh, in our development flow, but also be flexible. So you know, we were constantly, not constantly, we were, we were switching tools as often as we felt it was necessary to change with the sort of ebbs and flows of our team as we, as we grew in size. So I think two important things are always having a well-defined process, but also being able to change that process as business needs change or as more people come on and the process kind of breaks down. Um, you know, you should never be too tied to your tools because everybody uses different tools. It's, it's really what tools can we use that make us the most efficient? Um, you know, maybe one person doesn't like the tool, but the rest of the team does. So we should probably use that tool and, and kind of the other person just has to figure it out. Yeah. Um, Majority of rules, kind of. Yeah. But if everybody hates the tool and obviously you're just going to be, you know, 
spinning your wheels, like not really getting anywhere because people are trying to use this tool and it's just getting in their way. Yeah, processing uh, and tooling for process and tool's sake is probably not good. Yeah. So as long as everybody's on the same page and, and knows what the process is and, you know, you don't, you have it sort of documented in, in one way or another, um, that, that helps a ton as well because it kind of leads out a lot of the uh, guesswork. That's cool. So this is more of the stuff that we've talked about with stage block going um, and getting off on like kind of the early stage. I'm kind of taking us from that butterfly analogy. Now we're this beautiful butterfly and we find that there's this butterfly catcher out there and they got a net and they're going to take and start to catch you. And there's that moment that uh, you guys were drew enough of my analogy suck. I know I'm sorry. Uh, but there was that a moment where you drew enough of attention to take and then start to go through these acquisition talks. And this is like, a lot of people take and look at the acquisitions in a startup community as it being uh, like the end goal. I have my exit and I can stop working now. Um, like, and I'm talking just general startups uh, and not just spe specifically this. What was your, like, what was it like going through an acquisition? Was it a friendly thing? Was it fun? Um, and how do you like, uh, how did you guys transition from being an autonomous unit into now being part of full screen media, working in a larger company, building the team, and then moving from Chicago to uh, California? And you can leave out details, but just like more general uh, gen generalities about that process is because a lot of people look at that as being like the end goal. And I know that it's not really the end goal. It's just a milestone. Yeah. I was just going to say for us, it was kind of interesting because we had never built the company thinking we're going to sell this one day. We always build it thinking we're going to turn this into a business that supports us and what we want to do. And, you know, if it grows to be the next Twitter or Facebook, great. Realistically, it's probably not. Um, but, you know, and we were always, again, just kind of like we were with our process. You always have to be flexible. So we never set out saying we are going to sell this company. That is their only goal. But we also never set out saying we're never going to sell this company no matter what, unless we build it to be, you know, the Facebook by ourselves. Right, whatever. right. Um, so, you know, I, as you said, we were, we were kind of growing and growing. And then um, honestly, with, with full screen specifically, they work a lot with the YouTube stars. So we actually reached out to them to try to get some of their talent on our product uh, as part of our sales process and uh, diversify out of music. Um, cause at the time we were working a bunch with mostly musicians and we wanted to make sure that our product didn't get tied to be a product that only worked with the music industry. Diversification um, because, is a very good thing. Right. And so as we got talking more and more with full screen, um, the conversations eventually just came, well, we would want to use your product so much and, and we're a, a larger company than you that the amount of money we'd put into it, we should probably just send it. We should probably just buy you guys. Cause then we can have say over over stuff more directly, um, you know, your mission in terms of empowering creators and helping content creators is exactly the same as what our mission is. Um, the people over there that we went through the process with were great. It was, it never felt, um, you know, it never felt big brothery. It never felt anything sure. like that. So um, I think the most interesting part about the process, everything was pretty much smooth. I mean, it's the only time I've done it. So I don't know what I don't really have anything to compare to, but right, from my right. perspective, everything was, you know, pretty smooth. The, the only really sort of funny or interesting part that uh, comes up is, is with the lawyers. Um, <laughs> hearing, hearing lawyers go back and forth and watching all the paperwork fly back and forth, um, you know, 300 page documents with, 
red lines in every single page that get turned over in 24 to 48 hours by a legal team you're just like yeah you're like i don't even understand like half the words in this let alone the fact that you've changed them to mean something that i also still don't understand (laughs) um you know it's it's almost like a, a to a much lesser extent like a cell phone contract right like you never read the cell phone contract you don't know what anything in the cell phone contract you just hope that it's it's going to be what you want when you need it. Um, and going through the paperwork process for an acquisition is very much the same. You know, I honestly never really read anything except the high level deal points. Uh, sure. Because a, like there was just too much of it and B, uh, you know, you just kind of trust your lawyers are looking out for your best interests. And, you know, if you have good lawyers, that's going to be the case. If you have bad lawyers, you might get burnt. Yeah. Um, so always trust the lawyers do your vetting process though make sure you're getting the right ones and you know yeah we we definitely went through a couple of lawyers uh throughout the course of the company yeah so that's cool but like so tell me about the physical transition because you guys were a team of when you guys got acquired you were a team of you know in the in the tens right and now you're going into a company that is what in the hundreds or thousands of employees right now um Full screen, I think, is around. I forget if it's six hundred or eight hundred. It's so, at least six hundred. Um, yeah. So you're going from a, you're going from a small office, a small community where you know exactly everybody, to an organization that you're still operating uh, stage block inside of full screen as a entity, like as an autonomous unit. But you're now you have you know ten to fifteen to well twenty percent more people that you see on a daily basis just around you so how was that yeah. as a transition for the company like growing yeah, from like because you're now part of a bigger thing you're a bigger entity it, it's been really awesome from a lot of standpoints um you know there's the very simple ones like they have an it department they have an hr department they have all these departments where you just don't have when you're a bootstrap startup of you know 10 to 12 people like we were you know the founders kind of take that on or you outsource it to to some company where, you know, it's just kind of an automated thing. Um, so that alone was great. Um, being around, you know, just more developers, even if those developers aren't necessarily working on the same product or tools yeah. you are, or don't even work in the same language, like getting all the different mindsets, uh, the mindsets and everything that they offer was great. Um, one thing specifically that was really awesome too was Fullscreen has a, an amazing system reliability engineering team. Um, when we were when we were stage block, mm-hmm. yeah, we had sure. one, we had one employee who did that for us, and, and he was great at it. But you know, there was always more projects than there were time to do those projects. So coming into a company like Fullscreen, where they already have a team that does that, um, was also amazing because then you now you now have this extra bandwidth to get those projects done. Um, so you know, there's just there's just countless resources that we have at our disposal now that we didn't before. We you know we have a project manager now. Previously, project management was, hey, what's the highest priority? Like, what do you need for me to get it done? Let's figure it out. Um, we never really did any analysis of like, where are we spending our time? Is it worth spending our time there? Is there enough right, ROI? Right. Um, now that you have a dedicated person to do that, you can you can find more efficiencies in your operation uh, by analyzing more of that data and kind of having somebody who who's there to do that for you. Yeah, it's funny how the increase in resources can help you take and make your progress uh, so much better. Like, just the process part of it. Like, and it tells you, like, what are you spending? Like you said, exactly. What are you spending your time on? Is this valuable right now? Is this going to take it? 
is this bug satisfy one person or does this satisfy a million people? And if it satisfies a million people and it takes the same effort to satisfy one, we should probably be working on the larger scale issues than the hyper specific niche bug that this one edge case user says they want to have it in, you know, they need to have Latvian added to all SageBlock related sites as well. Um, we could do that or we could have people log in. Okay. Yeah. Like you get to have some more insights into that. That's a that's awesome. So the transition has obviously been good from you, the shared resources there. Like the physical transition was interesting too because you guys relocated. Like it was a, definitely a change. Uh, and you, I can tell you from one hundred percent, the stage stage block guys have been missed in the Chicago community. So come back soon. Uh, but um, how has the transition been from a social life uh standpoint of you were you set roots here in this community and now you're away so how has the transition been um to go to the coast and are you still in communication with the community here or like have you started to plant roots there like tell us about your life yeah um you know i still very much so talk to i don't i'm not as involved in the community per se in chicago just because it's hard to when you're far away but i do definitely still talk to all of my friends I made when I was there, you know, a lot of them are involved in startups and run tech companies. Um, and I definitely still talk to most of those people on, you know, if not a daily basis, definitely a weekly basis. Um, and I do try to get back there, you know, at least hopefully three times a year, maybe would be a goal. Um, in LA, you know, LA is very different. Uh, Chicago, you take public transportation everywhere. Uh, you know, on the more social level, you can stumble out of one bar and into the next bar almost by accident, <laughs> um, which is great for things like, you know, it's great for things like happy hours or networking events after work. Exactly. Like, it's, it's never a struggle to get there. It's always just like, cool, hop on, hop on the, the L and you'll be there eventually. Um, LA is, is very much so different in that regard. Um, it's massive. Uh, you drive everywhere and, and driving everywhere takes the longest time. So because everybody's driving everywhere. Yeah. So it's, I found it more difficult to find the, find like the right pockets of people here. Um, partially because you're kind of tied to whatever side of LA you live on, mm -hmm. uh, unless you're willing to sit in traffic all the time. So I live on the West side. Uh, I very rarely go, uh, anywhere except places on the West side. For sure. Um, so while there may be a lot of meetups in LA, uh, you know, in, in Hollywood or downtown or that sort of stuff. Um, it's very hard to get to them after work in a, in a reasonable time frame unless you're kind of dedicating, you know, a couple hours after work every day to, to the cause. Um, so it, it's definitely been interesting. Um, I'd say kind of going back to what I was talking about earlier, the, the, the people or in, and the startups in Chicago, uh, I found are oftentimes not as sexy, but um, are definitely just as viable of businesses, which those are sort of the businesses I'm more interested in anyways. Um, the, you know, I, uh, I know a person in Chicago who, who runs a quality control business for like, uh, for its software for like janitors of like public schools and that sort of stuff to use, mm -hmm. you know, you're never going to read about that probably in TechCrunch, uh, but they're doing very well. And it, it's a business that's helping a lot of people. Cause there's a need um, for that. Yeah. And so there's a lot of that in Chicago, which is great. And I love those sort of companies, you know, they're not going to sell for billions of dollars or even necessarily, you know, tens of millions of dollars, but 
very solid businesses run by very hardworking people. And, and I really like that about the community of Chicago. That's awesome. So I think we're going to take and wrap up here pretty quickly here, but I, I'm not going to let you off the hook. I'm going to take and ask you the 100% existential question here. And, you know, this might take you a second or two for you to think about, okay? Okay. Um, so I'm going to take and tee it up here. And this is, first off, before I want to do it, I, I just want to say thank you for coming on. And thank you for sharing, like, all that you've done. This founder story is great. And we'll take and talk about, maybe talk in a future episode with you, about some more technical stuff. Pick that beautiful brain, that beautiful mind of yours for all the, the PHP goodies that we can find in there. Um, but the question that I had, and this is one of the, this is, it's going to be one that's going to be cheesy, but what was the most, um, think back to a crowning moment of your journey so far with stage, the stage block company, stage block full screen. Think back to like one of the most things that have made you proud and what is that and why? And I'm sorry if that's a little, like if that's a hard one for, you know, here, but what was like the most proud moment that you've had? Cause this was, you know, this is a baby. This was something that you've invested an extremely long amount of time in. You've put a lot of hours into it. And it's a very like, like, first off, I'm proud that you guys were able to, I've seen you grow from that, that, uh, that th three bedroom basement apartment to where you're at now. So like that for me, my proud moment to see is your entire journey. What is yours from being on the inside of it? Yeah, that's a, that's a tricky question. Um, I don't know if there's one that stands out like way above the rest. Cause like I said, you know, along the way, it's a lot of very like glimmers of hope and glimmers of progress. Um, the one, and this may be a little cliche too, the one that sort of comes to the top of my mind just in the sort of couple of seconds I've been thinking about it is, is uh, getting our first office space. Um, and specifically, uh, we had these really amazing desks that we had custom built for this office space. Uh, and it just, it, that was kind of one of the first times it felt like, you know, and, and, and actually like having your name on the door, like the company name, like Stagebot. Um, that was one of the first times it actually kind of felt real. Um, you know, when you're just, when you're working out of your parents' kitchens or a co-working space, or even, you know, your own apartment with a bunch of people, um, it still feels very much so like we're trying to get this up off the ground. But once you have an office and you can invite people to that office for meetings and not to your house or to a coffee shop for meetings, uh, it just feels a little bit more real and, and afford, honestly, afford the rent uh, um, for the office space. Uh, it just feels that much more real. Um, and we, we always had this really cool thing at our office too, where, uh, people would take their shoes off at the door because we always we tried to get the culture of like, you know, you're going to be hanging out here all day working. It should feel like home. Uh, and, you know, so it weirded some people out like, hey, what's with all the shoes at the door? Um, but uh, the developers are always like, no, we just when we get in, we take our shoes off and it feels like home. Uh, so I guess that would be the one off the top of my head that that feels the most right. Yeah, I know I put you on the spot with there, but I want to say like that was one of the things that i remember every time you go into the office you see like 30 pairs of shoes at one time potentially <laughs> there it's uh, it's great so um josh again thank you for being on the show it has been an absolute pleasure and what i like to do just in general for uh any of the guests that are on the show is open the floor up for you for a couple minutes to plug pitch do whatever you want to talk about whatever you would like to 
Um, so yeah, the floor is yours. Open topic, not a question asked. What do you want to take and talk about? Any advice for anybody? Um, Sports picks, L.A. Rams, anything? No, nah, if you you should you should not listen to my sports picks on anything. Right. Um, I don't know. I, I guess all I'd say is you know check out Full Screen. They're doing some cool stuff. Um, you know, always oh just keep always working hard like there's gonna be times where you feel like you're never gonna make it there's gonna be people who tell you you're never gonna make it you're gonna have really awful days i still have some really awful days but uh it's all about persistence Um, if you give up the first time you lose a customer or have an awful day um you're never gonna end up anywhere you want to be um you know if if you lose all your customers every day then maybe you should think about a different uh (laughs) idea but uh you know you're always going to lose customers along the way it it may just be a matter of timing it may be a matter of skills whatever um but as long as you stay persistent um you'll probably get where you want to be that's awesome that's that's great for anything it's like learn learn that no is not always a bad thing and learn that it's not always it's not you it's it could be something that is out of your control like it's not you it's me it's not you it's me (laughs) i invented the it's not you it's me the george costanza stuff so that's awesome josh again thank you for joining us on the podcast today uh it is going to be great thanks for having me i'm going to take and put your information in terms of like the twitters on the link so if people have questions they could probably hit you up there if you uh if if you're okay with that yeah if if you want to see a really boring twitter full of nonsense uh definitely check me out yeah (laughs) yeah he'll throw some cat photos up there too in case uh, to make it interesting okay so that this has been episode 17 of the opinionated stance podcast i know that josh since he's sitting here he would say this if I'm going to try to do my best impression. If you are here listening and haven't done so, visit theopinionatedstance.com and also follow us on Twitter, right? You want them to follow us on Twitter and the yes. Facebook? You want them to I go- follow you on Twitter. Yeah, you they want follow you on Twitter. Yeah, you want them to all go to the iTunes, right, and Google Play and then click that subscribe button depending on what device they have, correct? I do, and I want them to do it on their friends' computers as well. Yeah, hack into your friends' computers and do that. We have the YouTube channel, we got stuff there, but again, if you have any comments, like if you don't want if Josh needs a date deeper voice, send us a comment. We'll give him the feedback. If you have questions, <laughs> Technical PHP questions, Josh has got them. I've got some, but I'll forward them to him. Or if you even have a show idea, if you want me to talk in, like, try to do a whole Spanish episode, I can do that. It's not going to be good, but I could try. So, but anyway, I digress on that. I'm trying to be a little funny right there. So, we again, we always love to hear the feedback from our listeners. Uh, and thank you again for listening to the show and uh, all the continued love and support. Josh, again, thank you for being on the show. Until next time, cheers. We are out.